0: Please join me in welcoming our chair lady, Kudzai Chichigi, to the stage um, to introduce our next panel discussion about expanding into the African continent.
1: Okay, can I please have the speakers on stage? We've got Johan, we've got Ross, we need Mandla, we need Solomon. Who else am I missing? And Danny, Yeah. This panel is on banking the continent, banking in Africa. So you might be interested to know that uh, banking in Africa is the second fastest growing in the world and the second most profitable of any global region. So there's definitely a lot that's going on on the continent even outside of South Africa. I think in South Africa we like to think that we know it all and we're in charge, but there's a lot more happening on the continent than probably what's happening in South Africa, and I think it's a very different terrain. Someone asked me a few months ago um, before we put uh, the program together about what the opportunities were. How would you get into sort of an African banking team? What sort of skill set would you need? Is it typically different? Is the work different? And I thought, you know what, let's just have a panel discussion and we'll ask the guys on the ground. So today we're actually quite privileged to have a group of gen- young gentlemen, young handsome gentlemen, I might say, um, who has a lot of experience on the continent. <laughs> we have a lot of experience on the continent. They've worked um, right across from the top right to the bottom of the continent and we're quite privileged to have them all here. It's very difficult putting this panel together. As you can imagine, because they work across the continent, it's hard to get them in the country all at the same time. Um, Johan flew in just a couple of hours ago from Mozambique. Um, Had my fingers crossed there that he'd make it in time. Anyway, so on this panel today, we've got Ross here on my immediate right. Uh, Very brief bio. He's worked at FNB for the last eight and a half years, five in South Africa, two and a half in Zambia, and the last year in Ghana. He's worked in the analytical and consumer banking areas, and he was also part of the first group of um, of candidates passed the Banking Fellowship in 2016, also a member of the ASA Banking Committee. And he'll be heading off to Yale to do his MBA in a couple of weeks. So thank you, Ross, for joining us. Then we've got Johan Marie. He's the CEO, one of the two CEOs of FMB of Africa. And after working as a skilled laborer on construction sites in London, he realized he had to go and study something worthwhile <laughs> and ended up doing his actuarial science degree at Tucks. And his journey into banking was a bit of luck, as in 2016, he applied. Um, And at the time, it was still very uncommon for actors to work in banking, but he got in and he started as a quantitative analyst in the credit card division, responsible for building credit card models and finalizing the Basel II implementation. Even though he's only ever worked at FMB within the banking space, he's moved around quite a bit, worked in treasury, heading up the credit card division. He's been CEO of two countries, Zambia and Mozambique, and now he heads up um, FMB Africa. And then we've got Solomon with us. So Solomon, he's actually a chartered accountant, is that right? So he's come to join us today to give us his insights and also his perspective about the value that actuaries also have um, within the banking space. He's the Chief Credit Officer of Wholesale Credit um, for the rest of Africa Division for ABSA Group Limited. He's responsible for end-to-end management of the credit function including credit preparation, structuring, sanctioning business support, restructuring, credit models, credit portfolio management. He's your guy. And he's been part of the ABSA Group since 2009, and prior to his current role, he worked in various roles within corporate investment banking credit as a credit analyst and lately as the sector head covering various portfolios in diversified industries, including consumer goods, global corporates, and the public sector clients. And then we've got, who do we have next? We've got Mandla Heeling from NetBank. He's a financial executive for NetBank Rest of Africa, and this comprises six subsidiaries and a 20% investment in EcoBank. It would be great to hear some of his experience on that side as well. And he's been with NetBank for the last 10 years, and before that he was with Barclays Africa, so we'll get some perspective from that side. And then we've got Danny with us as well. Danny Simwayo, he's a fellow of ASA and a CFA charter, um, charter holder, and he's now CEO of Standard Bank Group Wealth Africa. And in this he supports business across 14 countries to execute on their wealth strategy. He's got more than 10 years' experience in product development, technical marketing and insurance company balance sheet management. So I've proven to you that these are all highly qualified individuals (laughs) and they have the right credentials to share with us about their experiences working across the continent um, today. Okay, so I'm just gonna have a few questions and then we're gonna open it up um, to the floor. So not all the panelists will answer every question, but two or three who feel that they can weigh in on each question will do so. So, firstly, burning question, what is the single most significant challenge of managing a bank in Africa? Let's start with Mandla.
2: I'll mention two. The first one is regulatory, in terms of up. Uh, wants you to do when you're in these continents and uh, what even the local regulators want from you, and uh, the legal system, the slowness of the talent of the legal system. And the second one is skill, not not to be confused with the talent, just the skill uh, that uh, shortages in in these countries, especially when when you want to proliferate. Uh, banking products you might have in the home country so that you can have that, that seamless banking experience across the continent.
1: Oh, okay. They can't hear you. Okay. So your second point on skill, I think um, if you can just
2: repeat that question. I was saying the second point is uh, skill not to be confused with talent because there's great talent out there. We just need to provide to scale them up so they're able to provide you to, for you to proliferate all the banking products the market needs.
1: Okay, perhaps you can expand a bit on the skill side, and I think we will talk about it a bit later, but while you're on it, which skills? Is it on the marketing side? Is it developing products? Is it on the credit modeling side?
2: Let's talk more credit. For example, you would have, as a group, a requisite a require requisite processes to go through to provide credit. Uh, the your group would require to, to have models that uh, I mean, with the recent implementation of uh, ifris nine and all those kind of things, which you might not necessarily have there. So uh, there's a bit of supporting initially, so that uh, you can deliver what you need to deliver. But the key to to the sustenance is to make sure you develop those skills in country.
3: Okay. So some you oh, are but loud. I think important to note, Africa is not a country. Okay, so, Don't say. <laughs> so a lot of people just think it is um, one big thing, and they all operate the same, and the regulation is all the same across. Um, and I guess that's the the challenge that you face just from going in. Each market has got their own flavour and dynamics that you have to figure out, and marry that to kind of your South African, because we all, most of us, are South African outgoing companies. So you always have the mothership that wants to see certain things happening in a certain way. You spoke about some of them, the way we do credit, the way we do you know, online banking, all of these things. Um, so I guess that's the challenge for us on the, on the panel, is when you sit down, is to say, when I go to a country, some of them are more advanced in certain areas. So if you talk regulation, the country quite close to us, Namibia, on the payment space, are actually ahead of South Africa in terms of what they want to regulate. Look, it's not implemented, but it's, it's moving very fast. Um, and then you're sitting with head office that says, no, this can't be, this will never work. So I think there's a few challenges. To put one challenge will be too difficult, but I guess for me, it's the, the first point. Africa is not a country. So in each one, your value propositions, what you stand for, how you get talent, it, it goes to say, let's unpack the country and make sure I actually have something to offer. Um, Because I'll be the first one to say, you know, from F&B perspective, we're actually not suited for all the countries. There's certain countries where we will never go. Um, I can name one, and it's nothing against the colleagues, but like Angola, we'll never go. We will not go to Angola while it is the way it is. There's various reasons for it, but that already says, okay, then where where will we go to profit pools where we can extract value? So so I think just, yeah, maybe Africa is not a country.
1: Um, goes back to a quote that Yolandi had up, just because there's a gap in the market doesn't mean that there's a market in the gap. So yeah, thank you for that. Uh, Ross? I think from my
0: perspective, um, I, I never worked in the, the center of international, so I never really worked at head office. So I was always in the countries themselves. The thing that I'd say is one of the most challenging things about being managed by the sense is deciding the level of autonomy that you give to the the subsidiaries. Do you run the subsidiary by remote control from wherever your head office is? Or do you allow full autonomy in the countries themselves? Both have their, their consequences and anything along the way also has its downsides and upsides. So I'd say getting that balance right for each of the individual countries is quite important um, and one of the biggest challenges.
1: Okay, thank you very much, gentlemen. Now, okay, on to the next question. For those of you who've opened branches from scratch in some of the African countries, so you haven't inherited them from anyone else, what is the simplest and most effective route of establishing a bank in another African country? Do you buy a license from someone? Do you go and talk to a friend of a friend of a friend? <laughs> so how do you start?
0: Maybe if I can just uh, give some, some words to that before someone else takes over from me, is that I think simplest and cost, most cost-effective are two different terms in that question. So the simplest way is definitely to go and buy something. But that's not necessarily the most cost-effective way. Um, in fact, sometimes it's more expensive and depending on what you're looking at buying you need to find the appropriate targets I'm not sure if anyone wants to take over from there.
4: You've had my uh, My way I, I don't think cost-effective and and simplicity their goal um, in one line um, um, I Definitely right my view acquisition I think is the most um, simplest way to get into the market um, um, On the other hand um, cost-effective. I think today, if you look at the continent, and if you look at the opportunities, um, definitely um, scalable digital platforms would be the most um, cost-effective um, to build ground up, because you're not constrained by limitations, and you've got a, a clean, clean start. Again, that's if you've got the if you've got that technology and the scale, and, and that would be my, my view. Yeah, maybe I can comment. I think
3: for those of you who had to do any valuations, the PE multiples is quite high in any of these countries, even though the profit pools might not be as deep. So you kind of have this anomaly that you you apply our metrics and, and the thing is worth nothing. Um, it's actually they should pay you to take it. <laughs> and uh, then, then you have to still end up uh, paying something. So I guess to enter, we've done actually all the models. Um, we bought some, so we call greenfields, fields, brown fields, and then obviously, you know, startup. So, um, so full acquisition. I, th- I think there's a bit of a, again, a market dynamic. So certain markets, you probably wanna get something small, but with a scalable platform on digital. And then you have other markets where it's, it's worthwhile to have something big, and then you just add on certain business lines that you, that you don't have. Um, I don't think there's anybody who's got one formula because it, it depends on, on too many factors. But I guess if you ask me, should we start Greenfield again, I probably would say no. It's very hard to start from scratch. Even though you can think digital, you can think you put all these things, um, I think it's more important that you have a customer base. So it's actually more important to buy a customer base, I would say. It doesn't matter what it is. It might be an audit firm. But start with something that you can build on rather than go in with nothing,
2: um, that's a, that's a very costly and a long road. Okay. The recent ones we've done, I mean, uh, a small one in Mozambique, we started at uh, an associate level where we acquire less than 50%. Uh, and then uh, we spend a, year, a few years learning with our partners. And then when we are ready to up the investment, then uh, we increase to uh, a, a majority shareholding where we now, we now consolidate. But of course, we still keep our partners. I mean, they still have the the relationship, the connections, especially when now, again, as the head office, we're trying now to get them uh, not to restrict them, but uh, there are things that uh, we need to implement uh, in the risk and the, and the and the compliance space. The second one has been uh, a bigger one: the 20% investment in in it in ETI. We, because of the size of it, and uh, and the capital constraints, I mean, as is public knowledge. We are getting a separation from our old mutual. So the capital is constrained. So I think on that one, we'll probably for some time, because of the size, keep to, to that 20% and associate level, but then uh, learn with them and uh, see if we can get flows of business from either side, either eco-bank or, uh, or net bank, so that we can uh, get value, both of us, over and above the equity investment.
1: Danny?
5: I think uh, I've not been involved in any bank uh, setup, but I do think uh, it's important to understand the context, to understand the market, how it's structured. Uh, in a lot of African countries, you, know, you need to understand and know people in the market. So uh, it may be very important to have uh, the right partner, but you need to have the... You know, you know, choosing the partner is one of the critical uh, factors that's there. And I think secondly, um, acquisition generally, when you acquire very big things, there are a lot of things that you won't know uh, because you're not local, that you only find out after you've acquired the bank. And in the bank environment, it tends to be quite tough. And also, I think regulators, by their very nature, they don't want too many banks in the market. So they may force you uh, actually to just acquire because they want the industry to be consolidated. So I, I do think there are quite a lot of factors that come into play. And you know, cultural context and all that is important factors.
1: Okay, <clears throat> several of you have mentioned um, the regulator both sort of as a friend and a foe. And from your perspective, what has been the most challenging regulatory aspect you've had to deal with in entering these markets and staying in these markets? and where do you see the actuarial profession impacting how regulators view these other markets and how we can impact that? So I know it's a loaded question, but what's your perspective? And if you're, if you're to be hopeful, what do you see us doing differently?
5: I think the, there's been quite a lot of you know, regulatory changes. One of them in Kenya, they kept you know, interest rates that you couldn't go beyond a certain level. And I think um, they are starting to walk back I mean, the Minister of Finance is starting to walk back and seeing the imp- impact of that. So I think um, what I've seen is that um, there isn't strong engagement between the industry and the regulators. So I think if you look at South Africa, a lot of the time when regulation comes in, there's a lot of engagement between the regulator and the you know the regulated firms. And I do think that... Um, it's a model that should be taken across the continent to engage a lot with the regulators, um, and then you can influence the, the regulation. And it's because a lot of times uh, regulators also talk amongst themselves. So they just meet uh, and come up, You know, they find out someone is doing something differently, they want to, to implement that in their own country without understanding the full impact. So I do think the role that I think actually is, can... Um, just looking at how, like ASA engages with different regulators in South Africa, is to what extent can you have industry bodies that do engage with the regulator in terms of even supporting? So, if they wanted to keep, um, you know, interest rates in Kenya to actually, exp- you know, do a study where you can submit, you know, what is the full impact of that uh, factual information? So, I, I do think from that perspective, being able to provide the Necessary skills and understanding of the full implications of whatever you're putting um, up, and I do think the thing, like the actuarial control cycle, for me is one of the, um, you know, a tool that an, an actuary should be able to to use to say, okay, what is the issue, what are the implications, and how do you actually monitor whether the intention of the regulation is uh, obtaining.
3: Yeah, I guess my only worry with regulation is the speed of change. So what typically would happen, and I think we're all used in in South Africa, is there's a bit of a lead time, and we all have time to get it in. In a lot of the countries, it's like some of the things we had. On the 23rd of December, they tell you by the 27th it must be changed. Okay, so now you sit there, and you're like, okay, but no one is here. There's actually no understanding or appreciation for the risk you put the financial system under, um, which is a lot of times a challenge, and then... You end up being non-compliant, but the whole industry is non-compliant. So kind of like the, the teeth is not there, and then you're all waiting for your fine to come somewhere a little later after Christmas, Christmas present. So I think that's more an issue. And then, as a colleague mentioned, the, the big issue that actually can help is our problem-solving ability, which is not utilized. So you, you end up, um, I can give a practical example. So in Mozambique, lots of regulation to take away any fees you charge on retail customers, essentially to provide free banking. So when you do engage and you ask, but what's, the, what's behind this? They say, no, the teachers up in the north don't earn enough money. They get paid weekly because you ask them, how do you get to four free withdrawals per month and four this? And they said, no, no, so they figured it out. They said, no, they get paid weekly, So now, once a week, they must be able to do a free ATM withdrawal, and they must be able to do a free EFT transfer. And then you sit back and say, but you're not going to achieve your goal. um, Because you can't pay for the infrastructure with not getting revenue. So ultimately, you're going to have less of these things you want to encourage. Um, But I guess that was where we tried to illustrate. We can show them, Okay, there's a better solution. Um, even if it goes outside of banking into mpesa as an example, that's a better solution than what they're trying to do at the moment or have done. Um, but I think that's more where we can add value. And um, for people who go out, I think if you talk to any of them, they would actually welcome that. A lot of them then realize we can help to build the financial models, the, the you know, financial engineering behind it. But uh, I guess they first regulate and then you try and fix I think maybe if I can just add to that,
0: so without trying to be funny, but I think one of the, the best things actuaries could do to, to help in, with regulation is to go and work for the regulators. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of academics that, go, that have done economics, etc., that work for the regulators in the countries, but with, with the skill sets that we have and knowing kind of end-to-end processes, the more banking types of actuaries that will work, work for the regulators, Will help the banking industry's lives, uh, life a, a heck of a lot. Um, failing that, I know um, the regulators don't excite everybody. Um, but what we should be doing as an as an industry across the continent is making sure, whenever we do get an opportunity to comment, that we really put our hearts and souls into those comments, because we can't sit back and say, "Oh, the regulation is." is bad when we never really gave adequate feedback. Yes, when we get the notifications, I mean, there was one time where we got the letter of the 2nd of July, effective the 1st of July. Um, so, uh, these things do happen in real life, and obviously there was no time for comment then. But then it's really to try and form those individual relationships with the, the people working at the regulators, so that at least your bank might get your comment, even if the industry doesn't, at least your bank will get to get a say, and then hopefully, you'll then work with the industry players to get that more formalized. Um, So that would be my input of how actuaries can really help change that landscape.
1: Um, I think just to add to that, I remember years ago, when I was still at Deloitte, quite a few of the senior actuaries moved on to go work for the FSB. And clear as day, you saw a lot of regulatory changes that made sense, and the dialogue increased. And Mark did make the point earlier today that South Africa can boast of having the most sort of open communication between industry and the regulator, and I think just to support that point we 've done well in South Africa, but we need to take that practice into the rest of the countries and to your point of you can 't just wait for them to come knocking on your door, you need to actually put your hand up, and sometimes they don 't know they need an actuary it 's like when when people started working in banks. No no one was actually actually asking for a banking actuary. They just wanted someone who could solve problems, who had ABC skills, and you sort of just had to put your hand up and take a leap of faith and really invest in the overall system. So I think there is sort of a moral obligation on our side as well to a point of not just complaining. So a point that you mentioned, Johan, about, um, and also Dani, about problem solving. So a lot of people talk about the actuarial control cycle, and it's either obvious to you or it's not obvious of how you implement the actuarial control cycle in your day-to-day problem solving, whichever situation you find yourself in. A lot of people ask me what I do at the bank. I don't do any credit work, I can tell you that. <laughs> I don't do any balance sheet management. A lot of my work is really outside of the box, but I really only, the only formal education I have is in the actuarial space. So I can say I've used my actuarial knowledge in very non-actuarial spaces. So if you look at the sort of work you've had to do in the other African countries that are not so technical, what can you say is valuable from a financial education or a typical actuarial education? What is valuable from the actuarial skill set that someone can transfer directly without using the words actuarial control cycle? <laughs> or problem solving? Let's be a bit more specific. Um, I
5: think um, you have to help people. I mean, like, I think uh, an hour ago before I actually came here, I was on a call with my people are trying to solve a problem in one of the countries, um, I think a lot of the time uh, people don't define the problem very well, so to say you know when you're sitting with someone okay what are you what is the what is the the core problem right so I think you, you need to understand uh, the the problem that you're facing and what are the key factors that drive how you solution for it so I think in my mind, we you know just reflecting back on that, we had actually got to the end of the call, they were discussing, but they had left like two key parts of solving the problem. And completely everyone was like happy with the solution. And then when you ask, that's when people say, okay, they take a step back. So I do think that the best way to be able to help people is to be able to ask probing questions um, that say, I mean, have you considered this? Have you considered this? Have you considered this? And then when you come up with a solution, you also need to understand what is the implication of the solution that you're coming up with and how do you actually monitor it in practice. Um, and also I think being able to, to think about banking, in my view, um, apologies to any bankers that are here, is very rules-based. So there is less judgment in banking. So whenever you try to have discussion with people, they will tell you what the rule says. So is how, how then do you make them think about the rule? but be able to apply a good judgment. Because a lot of the times the rule is not 100% clear. Someone can interpret it the way they want to make it. And you'll find that a lot of the technical teams, they've got a set interpretation of what the rule means. And they, they like that, I think it works for, in a bank environment. So, but I do think that, you know, being able to sort of challenge people to apply judgment um, in how they solution for problem without really being constrained too much by rules.
1: I think, I, think I, I really appreciate your comment, and it's something that's been coming out, out of the IA banking working group in our discussions, and it's, it's not just here. All over the world, everyone, every sort of country represented, um, Their representatives say banking has become a tick box exercise. And I think it's so unfortunate and such a waste that you would get the sort of training that the actual profession provides you with, and you would go to literally tick boxes. I think, and to your point of, typically someone will tell you what to do instead of telling you the problem that they want solved. So I've, I've, I have found that that's sort of been the game changer for me in, in, in my line of work is to say, okay, that's nice, but actually what's the problem? Okay, so what are you trying to achieve at the end of the day? And I'll find a completely different way of solving it that's a lot more efficient, probably even more compliant, and everyone's happy at the end of the day, but we're just not thinking. We're, we're just not applying ourselves and we're not challenging the status quo. And to your point that a lot of it is quite subjective. There's there's this regulation that comes out. It's not prescriptive on exactly how you must build the model or what exactly you're supposed to do. So you need to think about it. And I I think we really need to challenge one one another in not just I guess in the in the Africa space, but in all the work that we do within banks to start challenging how we interpret regulation um, to feed through the system and solve any problem. I guess.
5: Yeah, definitely. I, and I think I mean having worked with compliance people in insurance and banking. I can see, like, there's a significant difference in the way that they uh, apply, you know, judgment.
3: Yeah, and, and maybe what, what's also important to realize is a lot of the countries um, run very basic banking. So it's more finance focused. So there's a balance sheet and income statement. There's no data being used anywhere in the bank. Um, somehow some branch manager will tell you this is how many sales we've done, but Look, ask how many of them are active, then again, no one knows. So I think that's the other part of of our profession that has got a huge role to play. is just to get, you know, data-driven organizations rather than just income and balance sheet. You know, somehow the system spits it out, and then we sit and talk a long time about the ratios. You know, that's that's kind of what typically in the markets happen. Um, And I guess that it's twofold. Why you get it is a lot of the skills are very thinly spread. If you go to any of the markets, there's north of 20 and actually more like 50 banks in each of these countries, most of them, which means if you just think about credit, you know you don't actually have that many good people that understand the technicality about it in the market. But then they all sit on fancy titles, head of credit for you know head of CIB credit. and when you start asking the questions, you realize there's actually nothing underneath but they've worked like that and they've got a title. So I guess that's where the, we can add a lot of value, It's just getting to what we think are basics. Just using the data, figuring out where you're going, what will work, and actually just understanding what your customer base is doing. Um, I think it's a huge plus that, that we can add um, in making these things make money.
1: So I have a direct question for you before we move on to Solomon. So you mentioned data. How good is the data that we're collecting for the other African countries? Is it on par with, um, at par with what we're collecting for <coughs> South Africa?
3: Um, I, th- I think that depends on many factors. The true, actual answer. Um, no, so so what happens is it's all there, but just like in SA, the data is never clean. I think some of you who've audited banking credit models would know that you always have to kind of first agree that the data is clean enough. <laughs> Um, that you, and they, normal, they normally don't correspond 100% with the system, so there's always a discrepancy. Um, so if you, if you don't apply a bit of that insight, then the raw data is not worth a lot. But as you get better and you start making sure, I think Yolandi also spoke about it before, which data points should we collect, where should they be scrubbed and cleaned, um, so there's quite a bit of work on that, call it data engineering, that, that I think there is more work to do, but typically for a lot of us, the systems is, is not the problem. It's just how do they drop the data and how do you, you harvest it. it is kind of where the problem sits. So I think there's a bit of work to do. We're getting better, but it's not, uh, it's not fixed yet.
1: It goes back to Rajiv's presentation on sort of where we intersect with the systems and technology teams and what role we have to play in making sure that um, we're up to speed and we have the tools that we need and we have the data that we need, the quality that we require. Yeah.
4: Yeah, um, I think going back to Ross's earlier point around um, um, the fine line between running a centralized model and, and, and to what extent you devolve um, 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 authority or decision-making on the ground. Um, my experience, and particularly w- working with the model risk um, world, um, I guess the challenge to, um, to this type of skill, it's more around how do we invest ourselves into the businesses how do we invest ourselves into the culture and understanding the underlying operations of those businesses that we've invested in. Um, I mean, I've seen lots of investment um, in, in South Africa, in, in, in data, in models, in infrastructure. Um, but, um, but when we get into the continent, I often my, my frustration is more the disconnect between the, the actual... Business experience that has to be um, translated into um, into a model. I think there is a huge gap there. I think we can do a lot by um, spending time in the businesses, understanding those businesses. Um, at, I think back to Dan's uh, point around um, making judgment calls that are very insightful. Um, because I I sit in discussions and I sit in the room, and 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 often is we can't do this because. Um, we don't have data, or your data is is crap, or um, it's fine, but business is going, and we've got competitors, we've got clients, and we've been banking them for, um, so where do we start? Where do we start building? Um, I can't fix what, I don't know, I can't fix what happened yesterday, but um, I need to start building something now, but I need to work with what I have now, um, and I need to do it to the best of my ability, and I have to be able to do it in a way that I'm maintaining my business, but at the same time I'm able to compete with, uh, with my competitors. So I, I, I honestly believe, particularly in that modeling space, there's quite a lot of talent in SA, but I, um, my personal experience, I'm not sure if all the areas of the bank are getting that same experience, because doing business in the continent is about being on the ground. Okay,
1: so we need to get people on the ground. All right, so let's shift gears a bit. Could you describe for us the changing role of banks in Africa, particularly given the rise of mobile money and fintechs, digital banking? How have your organizations been disrupted or had to disrupt themselves within of themselves to keep up?
2: From, from our side, I mean, uh, especially mobile money and, and, and all uh, going digital, it's going to affect us more, because I mean uh, you don't see a, a, a need now to become more bricks and mortar in terms of uh, ex- expanding. Uh, you can leapfrog using uh, mobile to reach uh, more, more, more clients, basically concentrating more on cost to service they, uh, your, your existing clients and uh, reaching new clients and uh, getting revenue in, in that space. Obviously, as you move into digital and mobile, uh, the revenues you get are more, uh, lesser than your traditional kind of business. That was your cash deposits, uh, cash withdrawal, and all those kind of things. So it's critical as we expand into the digital side of the business to harvest on, on, the, on, the, on the traditional business so that we can invest on the new business. Uh, but the management of that transition is, is, is key and
5: delicate. Danny. Um, I think, um, not speaking specifically to my organization, but I think there's a lot of partnership that you need to explore because what's happening now on the ground is that the fintechs are coming up in every African country. East Africa, there are lots of them. Um, and they are partnering either with um, you know, uh, mobile providers uh, in those countries. So I do think that a traditional regulated firm can work with a fintech and a mobile provider you just need to be very much open to partnership. And you need to develop um, you know, systems that, um, there's this term called APIs, where you can expose your APIs to other people to actually develop on top of your platform. So I do think there's a huge opportunity for banks to collaborate with, um, with fintechs and um, mobile providers, because I do think mobile providers, a lot of people, there's a huge penetration of mobile across Africa. Fintechs are coming on board everywhere, and I think you just need to find um, your niche. I was reading about one in East Africa where you know, um, a fintech, one of the biggest South African mobile provider, and a bank have all come together to actually be able to execute banking uh, to, to the unbanked. So I do think that's, that's my view.
1: Okay, I'd like to know have any of you been disrupted and started moving in that direction, as Dani has mentioned. Oh, Ross, you can speak, though. <laughs>
3: Yeah, so I think across the markets, you, and I think it's, it's true that what they do is they kind of give you a bit of a, of a fright. To say customers prefer, because we're all, you know, you, you're kind of quite arrogant in banking. You think, no, we have all the, the know-how and all the skills, and we've got the best app and the best whatever you want to call it. And then you realize that your customers are transferring money away from you onto someone else's platform to then start transacting. And I think that's when you suddenly realize, OK, this is not if I don't. So either I partner with them, or I buy them, or, or I copy them. So it's one of the, one of the three. Um, yes, so it, it, it has happened to us. And then they, what, what's good is we have responded in one of the countries with something that will compete. Because one of the things that FinTechs battle with is they don't have a customer base. So it's very cool solutions and it is actually, look, it's phenomenal when you see it. But to have 200 customers doesn't help. Um, and I think that's sometimes where, where what we do is we kind of see in, in certain markets we partner or we just go and become part of their ecosystem as we would call it. And in other markets where we have a fairly sized base and we think we can compete, we will take them head on um, because a lot of times things bank are good with is we, we can move cash so we all think we've gone electronic. In Africa, we are actually very good at moving cash around. Um, and that's, that's a scarce commodity, believe it or not, um, where the mobile money guys are really struggling. They don't always have liquidity. So as basic as walking up and just being able to withdraw cash, I guess in South Africa none of you actually think about it. But in a lot of these countries, you need to be able to do that. And as long as that gap exists, I think that's where banks still have a little bit of a, of a, let's say, a spot above them, um, and then what we're doing is we're using that, as spot to innovate new, new uh, models of distribution, which we think will work well, but we'll have to see. Maybe we sit here in two years
4: and then we can talk about it. Um, so I think uh, f- uh, from our perspective, I mean, there are opportunities. I mean, earlier on we spoke about um, lack of data. Um, I, I mean, so. There's, there's, there's a number of things that um, I look at. I mean, if you look at a market like Kenya, there's more than 20 banks. Um, Dan spoke about um, regulations that kept interest rates. So a certain segment of the market overnight became unprofitable. Um, so so without scalable um, mobile platforms, um, you, you can no longer bank that, that segment. So it's a huge opportunity for the banks to collaborate. Um, so mobile providers have have the data um banks don't have the data um it has liquidity so it's definitely a partnership model um there's also real needs on the ground i mean if you if you look at um uh, east Africa particular it's a market that is very entrepreneurially um driven so and 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 that environment is very very informal and and it it's likely to remain like that for 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 a very long time so if you don't um, digitize and, and collaborate and bring these um, innovative um, solutions, you're not gonna be able to do. Um, I mean, some of the, some of the things that we, we really, really are pushing very, very hard is test and learn. And I think Yolanda earlier on was speaking about, I mean, I obviously come from credit, so I'll be uh, essentially one of those people, but we have to embrace test and learn. And I think this is where um, this crowd will be able to to help us in in terms of building non-traditional um, scoring pricing risk uh, models looking at alternative data sources and i think if you look at the ip that sits here uh, that's a huge opportunity um for, for 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 the banks and we're solving real needs i mean these are rural people that don't have formal infrastructure these are agricultural um, small holdings that are looking for fertilizers and seeds, um, using um, uh, mobile wallets uh, for deposits and withdrawals, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So definitely, um, it's something that we we can look at.
1: I think that goes to Mark's earlier point about banks moving from just being a moral police force into becoming social engineers. And I think sometimes we underestimate the role that we play in society and sort of shifting the needle and in some of these things. We, you, you never think that it's fertilized for someone to feed their children or go to school. You just think, well, they're not credit worthy or our model doesn't quite fit his business model. Anyway, so on to the last question before we open to the floor. What advice would you give to someone who's considering entering the rest of Africa teams within banking or even looking to open a business in another African country, for example?
2: I think the first one is to do your homework properly. As my colleague here said, Africa is not a country. It's 54, 55 of them with, which are very different. And uh, secondly, I mean, you must choose what you are good at as a, as a start to get into, in, into the market and uh, work with the local partners because the localization is becoming days of holding. These uh, subsidiaries 100% now are probably gone. So choosing the partner you are going to work with is, uh, is, is, is critical.
0: One of my favorite things to tell South Africans, being a South African myself, is how many of us have made fun of the Americans for not knowing where their own current country is? I've done it multiple times. Or where, where, um, where other countries are on the map, or where South Africa is. I mean, it's in the name. What we need to realize as South Africans is we're the America of Africa. And that might be hard to hear, but the more I've, I've been out further up on the continent, the more I know it's true. Um, so what I'd say is if you're looking to, to go out to the rest of the continent, really ask yourself who you are as a person. Are you willing to unlearn a lot of the things you already know because they simply just don't apply in other markets? Um, there is a lot of that your experience can help with, and there's a lot of fundamentals and business knowledge that you can take across. But ultimately, you will be a visitor in these countries, and there's a lot to learn from the countries themselves. So if you're, your intention is to go and fix whatever country you're going to, it's going to be a big wake-up call within the first couple of weeks. Um, so I'd really suggest, if you're looking to get into the international portfolio, really examine yourself and see how much you're willing to relearn and experience and get to know people. How, can, how much you, can you change the way you interact with people? Because the way we have our own interactions in South Africa is offensive in other countries. Um, so it's those kinds of nuances that you need to get around and need to think about. Are you the kind of person that can still be successful even if you need to change what might seem like core parts of
1: you.
3: Yeah, maybe I can add from personal experience, I've been to two countries and I took my family along. Okay, so that's quite a big mission. <laughs> Those of you who have uh, more, you know, families than just yourself and your partner, um, it's quite tricky, but what a great experience. So I think if I can answer twofold, family-wise, Great experience to go. There's different cultures, different schools. Um, Let's say lots of the issues we face in South Africa, crime is one of them, is not really an issue in a lot of these places. Not in all of them, but in a lot of them. Um, But what's important there is that you immerse yourself in the culture. So you actually have to do a bit of, let's say, studying before you go. This is not just you go and you. You know, figure it out yourself. There's a there's quite good organised programs that will teach you a bit about the culture. Where does it come from? How do the people in the collective culture think? Um, because that's important personally, and then in the business life, it's even more important because a lot of the countries are non-confrontational. So we would sit in meetings and essay, and we debate things, and we think that's the way to do it. Um, as Ross mentioned, in a lot of the countries, that's not part of the general culture. So not to say, not every, not people, there are not some people who will debate, but most people won't debate. They look at you and they just, you know, they must be thinking a lot of things in their head. And ultimately, the business doesn't go forward. Um, so that's, that's one that you really have to pay attention to and, and have a feel for the softer side. Then what's important is you have to be quite resilient. There are lots of things that we are used to that doesn't work um so you can't sit and then be complain about it the whole time, then you might as well stay in South Africa or go to Europe or wherever where things work um so So I think you have to be resilient and then one of the things that that I always took with is you you have, you have to think out of the box and be quite innovative on getting quick wins on the board if you're in these teams. It takes a lot of time to get capacity. I think I didn't hear it, but it sounds like there was quite an interesting IT conversation earlier today. It's even amplified when you go to a lot of the countries um, and you sit there on your own. So you have to find other ways of doing it. You can't just hope someone in SA at head office or your IT team will do it. Your IT team a lot of times are only four people. So (laughs) there's not a lot you can do. So I think that if you split the two between personal and business, there's a lot of excitement and growth you get from both. And I would recommend it to people who, who want to try it out.
1: Okay, are we done? Okay, so maybe let's give our panelists a round of applause. Thank you very much. And perhaps we can take two questions from the audience before we get ready for our last speaker of the day. Do we, does anyone have any burning questions? Kuda. Kuda's got a burning.
5: Thanks, Kuzai. Uh, Sorry, so this is open for for anyone on the panel to answer, uh, but uh, Ross raised it initially. Um, When you mentioned that um, maybe um, it's very beneficial for actuaries to also work as part of uh, regulators and uh, they can provide a different perspective, Um, I just want to ask a question uh, and put it a bit further up to say. Um, what what are your thoughts in south Africa uh, to have um, a government actually a statutory government actually to sit maybe be it in parliament or whatever but it will be just statutory just right there
3: i i, I think it will be good <laughs> no so so i think we we experience very similar in the south african you know i've worked on both sides we we have a lot more engagement in south Africa but it's not not always as informed. I think it's better um, on the banking side. I think Saab has got good people and a lot of them have worked in banks and they cross-pollinate quite well. Um, But again, when you get into some of these newer avenues um, that are mostly data-driven, I guess that's where the opportunity will sit, where there's someone with better understanding of how do things fit together, um, where I think our profession can add a lot of help in, in that Um, And then obviously we didn't speak a lot about um, some of the Basel III and in in that world there's also quite a big actuarial component which we didn't touch on in this discussion but I think if you put all of it together and and at the moment there's also the Twin Peaks and I'm not too familiar but I just know it's creating some havoc in the middle when you sit there and you you try and operate so I think it's not a bad suggestion to get a lot of the guys on the same side um, on some of these complicated topics.
0: um, you've mentioned that we need to unlearn certain things and relearn again. Um, obviously, when you go out and get new experiences, you do learn new things. That's why we do what we do. Um, what would you say, and this is at the panel in general, is your key learnings, let's say just a single sentence, um, that you most value what you got from your experience in Africa? Um, Single sentence checks are still a thing, Um, but being serious, um, the the single most important thing that I I probably learned uh, in my time on the continent is that um, there are a lot of stereotypes held by many people that are incorrect, and um, for me personally, my soft skills have improved improved a bunch by being in these countries, Um, so that was my biggest takeaway.
2: For me, the key learning is the ability to influence. I mean, you can't be sitting at a head office here and telling your CFO in uh, Zimbabwe that uh, he must do this and that and that. He will say yes, but it's not going to (laughs) happen. But if you influence, influence takes a long time, but it's more sustainable and people see value when you are able to influence them. So I would say influence is a key skill uh, I've, I've learned.
4: Um, I think from my perspective is to build trust I think businesses i mean trust is the cornerstone and um I think uh, between culture and trust those were the key things that I had to um learn when I started um, traveling and working and and that actually i think the more you trust people the more you you embrace the culture i think um, the more people trust back, and I think um, the more it is easier to um, communicate, and the more it is easier to um, be able to um to work together um, I think for me, I think uh, people still do take lunch and sometimes it 's an
5: hour and a half <laughs> because they go home to eat and and all of that so it 's important to be able to appreciate that you know people have got a certain way of working, but I think ultimately. I think uh influence and being able to build relationships i think people will listen to you more you know in south africa if you say what you say people just listen to you um and also i think it's not everywhere where people call each other by first name you know in certain countries if you call someone by first name it's a it's a problem you have to call them mister uh you know in certain countries it's not so it's one of those so just observing some of those things
1: all right thank you very very much to our panelists Uh, I'm sure you all got something out of that Um, it's not typically something you'd pick up in your actuarial notes but I think having the wealth of knowledge on this stage is invaluable and was definitely a delight and yeah maybe you'll get some CVs out of this (laughs) and build up those credit teams in the other markets so we just have a few tokens of appreciation Um, and yeah I think let's give our panelists another round of applause